This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. Well, now you are listening to Mineral Two People's Radio, and this is the Calling All Workers show, the weekly broadcast from Unions Manawatu. I'm John Shannon. Today we have a collection of articles that have come out that have taken my fancy, and I'd like to pass on to you. The first of those is from the current issue of History Today. It's an article which they call What Have Strikes Achieved? Withdrawing Labour is an age-old response to workplace grievances, but how old and to what effect? And it's written by Lynette Mitchell, who's a professor in Greek history and politics at the University of Exeter. Strike action, the withdrawal of labour as a protest, was known in the ancient world. The Greeks, however, did not generally form themselves into professional guilds, or at least not before the 3rd century BC, when the associations of the musicians of Dionysus were formed alongside the the growth in a number of festivals. This does not mean, however, that the Greeks were oblivious to the significance of the withdrawal of labour. The epic poem, the Iliad, begins with Achilles, the best of the Greek fighters, withdrawing from battle against the Trojans because he has been deprived of his war prize, the concubine Processus. Withdrawing one's skills as a fighter in warfare was a significant bargaining tool. At the beginning of the 4th century BC, the Greek army of the 10,000, who were employed by Cyrus the Younger in the war against his brother Artaxerxes II, threatened to abandon the Persian prince unless he raised their pay to a level commensurate with the danger of engaging the king of kings in battle. They had originally been employed on another pretext and a different pay scale. In 326 BC, when the soldiers of Alexander the Great reached the river Hyphasis in the Hindu Kush, they refused to cross it and penetrate further east into the northern India, thus forcing Alexander to give up his pursuit of limitless glory. The writer Arian says that this was his only defeat. War brought glory, but it also brought misery. In Astrophane's comedy Lysistrata, produced in 411 BC, the women of Greece unite together in a sex strike in order to force their husbands to give up their wars with each other, Although the women struggle to maintain discipline amongst their ranks, some of the most comic scenes of the play describe women sneaking away from the Acropolis which the strikers had occupied. The Lysistrata, a woman of intelligence and determination, is asked to arbitrate between the Greek cities in order to bring the strike to an end. 
She presents the warring men with a beautiful girl, Reconciliation, and the play ends with the Spartans and Athenians remembering the wars fought together against the Persians. Peace is restored. Early in the 29th year of the reign of Ramesses III, which is circa 1153 BC, the royal tomb dwellers of Deir el-Medina grew increasingly concerned about the payment of their wages. The workmen were paid in sacks of barley and wheat, which was not just their family's food, but also currency. Late deliveries and underpayment had become typical, leading one scribe to keep a detailed record of the arrears. Supply issues uh, were linked to the agricultural calendar, but the consistent problems of this period show it was also a failure of the state. An initial complaint by the workers was resolved, but the causes were not dealt with. Within the, with the approval of their captains, a three-man leadership group, the workers staged eight days of action. They passed the walls of their secluded village and walked down to nearby royal temples chanting, We are hungry. They held sit-ins at several temples, but officials remained unable or unwilling to assist. A torchlight demonstration later in the week forced one month's grain payment. In the following months, they passed the walls multiple times. Eventually, the recent promoted vizier, Tau, wrote to them explaining that the royal granaries were empty. He apologised with the politician's answer for the ages. It was not because there was nothing to bring you that I did not come. In reality, Tau was probably busy in the Delta capital at the King's Royal Jubilee. Tau rustled together a half payment to appease the striking workers. After this derisory delivery, the angry chief workman, Cons, proposed a door-to-door campaign against local officials, which was only halted by his fellow captain, Amak Nud, the scribe who recorded much of the detail we have about the strikes. Even after a bulk reimbursement was paid early in the year 30, inconsistent payments resulted in more industrial action in the ensuing years. The strikes were indicative of increasing regional instability. At Wasit or Luxor, experienced food shortages, inflation, incursions from nomadic tribes, tomb robberies and more downing of tools. The workers' village was partially abandoned about 70 years later. The word strike usually brings to mind a mass strike which goes on for a long time and completely shuts down an industry, such as the British coal miners' strikes of the 1920s and the 1970s. These sort of disputes have rarely achieved anything positive. They are costly for the incomes of the strikers and their families, and if their unions could afford to give the strikers some support, then that only drained the organisation's funds. The stress caused has often led to splits within unions and friction with other organisations. It is notable, therefore, that in recent years, trade unions calling large numbers of the workers out on strike have tended to focus on limited days of action rather than indefinite closures. The, sometimes the wider public have been sympathetic towards the strikers. This was the case during the London Dock Strike in 1889. However, when the disruption has affected public services, as in the winter of discontent in 1978-79 in England, 
strikers have become very unpopular. Often when this sort of strike action achieved positive results for the trade unions, it was when the government had reason to intervene in their favour. During the First World War, for example, when maintaining military production was essential. The mass withdrawal of labour is not the only form of strike action that has been seen in the past. Highly skilled unions, such as engineers and printers, developed a tactic known as the strike in detail, during which they used their unemployment funds to support members in leaving blacklisted firms and thus effectively targeted the employers one at a time. Another possibility is the opposite of a strike, a work-in, as at the Upper Clyde Shipbuilders in 1971, or Rickson in Levin, when a significant part of the workforce refused to accept the closure of the yards and won significant public support for their positive attitude. In general, the mass strike is a dangerous weapon that can easily backfire. Success depends on the response of the public and the ability of favourable government intervention. Gu Hong was shot dead by a foreman on the 15th of May 1925, triggering China's anti-imperialist May 30th movement. Gu was a worker on strike at a textile mill in Shanghai. The mill was Japanese-owned, Japan being among the countries that had semi-colonised China. Outraged by Gu's death, the and the imperialism behind it. Students and workers demonstrated in Shanghai's foreign settlement on the 30th of May. At some point, British police opened fire, leaving more than 10 demonstrators dead. In response, a general strike was called with workers, students and merchant unions, the Shanghai General Chamber of Commerce, as well as the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, and the Chinese Communist Party, among its leaders. Among the strikers were students, merchants and workers in various sectors such as seamen, workers at the wharves, at phone companies, power plants, buses and trams. Not all sectors participated and certain individuals broke the strike, some of whom were then kidnapped by their unions. The strikes were accompanied by boycotts of foreign goods and sometimes strikers clashed violently with authorities. Demands were broad and were not confined to work-related issues, but also covered anti-imperialist goals, such as the end of extraterritoriality. By August, enthusiasm for the strikes had waned. Merchants were tired of their financial losses. Some of the workers started rioting against their union uh, since strike pay had dried up. The strikes organisers therefore had to settle the industrial and political dispute. Contemporaries were unsure if the strikes had achieved their goals. Strike demands had been reduced and not all were met. Many new unions had been formed, but some were also closed by the authorities and labour movement organisers had to go underground or face arrest and execution. But there was one clear winner, the Chinese Communist Party. If workers had previously mistrusted communists as hairy, badly dressed extremists, the party was now acknowledged as a leader of labour Imperialism in China would end, but not until after the Second World War and the era and the era of global decolonisation. I thought that was a bit quirky and interesting. And the other thing, uh, other article I'd like to touch on was uh, in a recent issue of the Labour History Bulletin, a publication of the Labour History Project, a group of academics and union people and 
community activists um, that reports on activities around left-wing issues in New Zealand. And this one is about the uh, Conscientious Objectors Memorial that was built in, that has been built in uh, Dunedin. It's of relevance to us here in the Manor too because we had uh, a gentleman by the name of Mark Briggs who was originally a flax mill worker at Tokamaru and then set up an auctioneer and second-hand goods business in Cuba Street. Um, and he was one of the conscientious objectors in the First World War, along with Archibald Baxter and others, and he was one who was taken to France and put through what was called Field Punishment Number 1, where they're, well, they were thrashed and treated like dirt and at one point uh, tied to poles in the middle of the no-man's land with the bullets between the different armies whistling around them. Um, the Mark came back to uh, Palmerston North and uh, lived out the rest of his life here, ultimately being appointed by the uh, savage Labour government uh, as a member of the upper house, the legislative council that was then in place. And uh, he, he became quite a favourite son of, of the town, quite well-known, well-respected. So here's about the ob Conscientious Objectors Memorial. After close to 10 years in the planning, at 3.30pm on Friday the 29th of October in 2022, Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson cut a ribbon to open the Archibald Baxter Memorial Peace Garden honouring New Zealand's wartime conscientious objectors. Situated on a reserve adjacent to Dunedin's George Street, it takes its place alongside just three others in the world, in Tavistock Square in London, in Manitoba in Canada and in Massachusetts in the United States. Situated on a T-intersection, the upward-sloping garden faces Albany Street, ironically in a direct line down that thoroughfare with the city's soldier on the hill. This proximity is important as this space, paying tribute to these men, sits in eyeshot of the soldier memorial which honours New Zealand fallen in both world wars. This is as it should be. They complement each other. One honours the bravery and sacrifice of soldiers, the other honours the moral courage shown by conscientious objectors. Here, symbolically, they are in conversation with each other. While Baxter is the centrepiece, it is a memorial to all New Zealand objectors during both world wars, highlighting the suffering they experienced. Shane Wilder's sculpture, which stands at the heart of the memorial up the slope from the main road, is an abstract expression of field punishment number one, which for which four New Zealand objectors had to endure in 1917. Under a Military Service Act passed on the 1st of August 1916, all eligible men between the ages of 20 and 45 uh, were required to register for military service. Over the next two and a half years, close to 600 men claimed conscientious objector status, mostly on religious or ideological grounds. Some swallowed their scruples and enlisted, more than half, when they were allowed for non-combatant service. Yet 286 objectives refused to serve in any capacity and were sent to prison for three to six months and more if they did not change their minds on release. 
The most dramatic story in this war involves 14 objectives, objectors who in the early morning of 14 July 1917 were suddenly uprooted from their cells in Wellington prisons and army camps and frog-marched in handcuffs by red caps of military police down to the wharf and confined in bottom cells on the troopship Waitemata for transport to England. The government believed that these men were still soldiers and defence Minister James Allen naively believed that once the 14 saw the great work that the soldiers were doing in France, they would immediately change their minds and join the fray. They did not and were subject to ill treatment both on the ship and at Sling Army Camp in the Salisbury Plain where they were first confined. Each of the 14 had their own responses to their incarceration, all but two of them opting to become stretcher bearers close to the front line in France. Four of them, Archibald Baxter, Mark Briggs, Lawrence Kerwin and Henry Patton, lasted the longest. Resisting assaults from redcaps, solitary confinement on bread and water diets for long periods, they were forced to endure field punishment number one, where they were strung up on poles in all weathers with hands tied behind their backs and with feet and knees bound. The redcaps who administered this punishment often uh, possessed a hatred for these men and bent the regulations by having their wrists tied tightly as possible, ensuring that their feet were off the ground and letting them hang for much longer than the daily two-hour quotas. Blood congealed in their wrists and hands, so much so that they turned bright red, then purple and black, the men suffering excruciating pain in their hands, arms and feet before they lost all feeling. Arguably three others, Baxter's brother Sandy, Gareth Ballantyne and William Little, suffered equally horrendous treatment and for longer. They were packed off to the notorious Dunkirk military prison where some of the guards were violent criminals deliberately brought over from British prisons for the purpose. With the death death sentence hanging over them, they refused to work building ducks boards for the army. In response, they were cuffed at their wrists and ankles, beaten with sticks and whips, left shivering in the cells cold and hungry, denied adequate food, hot drink and underclothing. What food there was, mouldy bread most often, was thrown into the cell and the handcuffed men had to crawl along the floor and gnaw it like dogs gnaw bones. It was understandable that because of this inhuman treatment these men suffered, they agreed to become non-combatant stretcher bearers, one of the most dangerous jobs at the front line. Indeed, Little was killed a few months later. However, two men survived the brutality, Archibald Baxter and Mark Briggs, holding out to the end. That uh, we know so much about Baxter's wartime story, and to a lesser extent Briggs and the others, was due to the remarkable memoir, We Will Not Cease, Baxter wrote, while revisiting Salisbury Plain in the late 1930s. In many respects, conscientious objectors faced an even tougher time during World War II. After conscription was introduced in June 1940, close to 3,000 applied for exemption on conscientious grounds. Unsympathetic appeal board members dismissed 81% of the appeals either outright or or subject to non-combatant service. Appellants faced the same decision, whether to serve as competence, non-competence, 
or resist entirely. The 800 who remained defiant were sent to specially built prison camps in rural areas for the duration of the war, which in 1941, uh, where the incarceration began, was unknown. This contrasted sharply to the finite sentences their compatriots were subject to in the earlier war. Moreover, in June 1942, a quickly devised order in council saw malcontents in these camps being sent to regular prisons, sometimes kept in solitary confinement for long periods. Moreover, for much of the war, the government was in agreement with the Returned Soldiers Association, argument that no objector should be released until every serviceman overseas had been returned to New Zealand. This intolerance was largely the brainchild of the of Prime Minister Peter, Peter Fraser and the Minister of National Service, Bob Semple, whose department was in charge of the administration of the regulations dealing with military defaulters, as they were officially called. It was ironic that, as impassioned socialists, these two men were among the most outspoken anti-conscriptionists during World War I, both during 12-month prison sentences with hard labour for publicly decrying its imposition. In 1940, Fraser, having long since abandoned his socialist roots, argued that this was a very different war with a clearly identifiable foe and resistance to serving in it was unconscionable in his eyes. Interestingly, cabinet ministers with more liberal views, such as Walter Nash and Rex Mason, found their remonstrations falling on deaf ears. Some church leaders and civil libertarians who argued for a more benign system, such as was in operation in the United Kingdom, were also ignored. It transpired the last objector was not released until May 1946, more than a year after the war with Germany had ended. Fraser's narrow-mindedness towards these men contrasted sharply with how conscientious objectors were treated in other Allied countries. During World War I, Great Britain treated conscientious objectors ruthlessly, also sending men to the front line. Many suffered long prison sentences, lasting years in some cases. Some remained in solitary confinement and subject to beatings, mental illness and suicide were common. After the war, there was an upswelling of anger in the country over the harshness of this treatment, which had abrogated the long-held British concept of tolerance for the nonconformist conscience, a legacy from the 16th century. Consequently, Neville Chamberlain and later Winston Churchill's Conservative governments ensured that conscientious objection was a valid position in war. The Appeals Board's members were given training in understanding conscience arguments and 53% of nearly 60,000 objectors were given genuine status and allowed to work in the community on a kind of parole system. Furthermore, an appellant tribunal was established and 20% of those who had initially failed won their cases on appeal. Those who failed were sentenced to a finite term of imprisonment, usually six months, and then manpowered to work on or in the country's hospitals, farms, mines, fishing boats, quarries, forests, or those factories not manufacturing implements of war. In doing so, they were in large part replacing the men who had gone to war and the economy desperately needed their labour. The great majority of objectors accepted the mild constraints of the regulations passed allowing them to do this work and there was little complaint from communities within which they lived and worked. There were similar outcomes for objectors, sincere and insincere, in Australia, 
Canada and the United States. It needs to be recorded that Peter Fraser's harsh decision towards these men and that being confined in rural areas they were out of sight and out of mind of the bulk of the populace met widespread approval from most New Zealanders. Certainly he was embarrassed about his anti-militarist past and there were outspoken reactionaries in society, both civilian and military, who alongside newspaper editors were all too prepared to rise in anger if his government perceived to be too soft on these shirkers. Um, The Archibald Baxter Memorial Garden and National Memorial to all conscientious objectors started from a seed planted by a Dunedin accountant and history of Shinyadu, Tony Eyre. He wrote an opinion piece in the Otago Times arguing that Archibald Baxter should be given prominence in a new military gallery, the Otago Settlers Museum. Uh, And others joined him in this campaign, including descendants of, uh, of Archibald Baxter and Chris Finlayson, um, became a board member as well, so there was support from uh, national MPs. Um, so that's a bit of an oversight there on a significant uh, development in uh, recording our history, and that's in Dunedin. I wonder if we could get together some form of campaign to have a uh, memorial um, here in Palmerston North for uh, Mark Briggs. Um, It would seem to me appropriate that he, being the other that stood firm throughout with Archibald Baxter, should also have his name uh, remembered in this context. Uh, right, ho, well, we've uh, come to the end of the show and we will go out with uh, some music. This is the Cronus Quartet, um, an American group, and they are celebrating the life and the works of uh, Pete Seeger. And uh, this particular track is called Step by step. Step by step, the longest march can be won, can be won. Many stones can form an arch, singly none, singly none. And by union what we will Can be accomplished still Drops of water turn a mill Singly none, singly none believe that the future is going to be millions of little things saving us. Back in the 1950s, there was a tiny peace demonstration in Times Square. A young Quaker was carrying a sign. A passerby scoffed. Do you think you're going to change the world by standing here at midnight with that sign? 
I suppose not, said the young man, but I'm going to make sure the world doesn't change me. I imagine a big seesaw, and one end of the seesaw is on the ground with a basket half full of big rocks in it. The other end is up in the air. It's got a basket one quarter full of sand. And some of us got teaspoons, and we're trying to fill it up with sand. One of the years you'll see that whole seesaw go zoop in the other direction, and people will say, Gee, how did it happen so suddenly? Step by step, the longest march can be won, can be won. Many stones can form an arch, singly none, singly none. And by union, what we will can be accomplished still. Drops of water. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.npr.nz forward slash donate.